Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. Trevor set things up for us last week in preparation for this particular passage. If you don't have a Bible with you, don't worry. Um, Scriptures will go up at the relevant times during my message on the overhead. So, I don't know if you've noticed that in sport, there are lots of different leagues. So, for example, in rugby, there'll be a social league for social rugby players, there'll be a club league, there'll be a super rugby league, and then there's obviously the international games as well. And every game of rugby, no matter what game, uh, what league it's played in, um, follows the same pattern, doesn't it? But the quality of the players and the quality of rugby that's being played is vastly different. So, at the start of a rugby game, the, the, the team that has the ball and is doing a kickoff kicks the ball as high into the sky as they, as they can, and the opposing team have to catch it. Now, I remember when I was playing rugby as a schoolboy, um, I used to play lock, strangely enough, I, I can't <laughs> imagine why. I think it was because I, I, um, I just grew quite tall very early and then just stayed the same and everybody else, <laughs> even the scrum halves used to get taller than me. But, but my job was to catch that ball and there would always be a supporting player to lift me up so that I could catch it. And the job of that supporting player was to make sure that I got back to ground safely, but more importantly that I had some support when the opposition team came thundering up to try and flatten me. And, you know, I, it was the most terrifying experience. I used to hate it. You know, you would be looking at that ball, and out of the corner of your eye, all you could see was these guys just, just tearing down on you. And I don't, I don't care who you, who you were, but you didn't want even the strongest guy in your team to be lifting you up, you know, when you're a little guy. Who you wanted was that. You wanted Tendai Mutawarera to be lifting you up because you'd feel that much safer. And the week before last, um, it, we, were, we were saying that every one of us is under the wrath and the judgment or the justice of God because we've all rebelled against him. We've all at some stage or another said, God, we don't want you around. We don't want you with us while we do X, Y, and Z. And of course, that's a little taste of death, really, because death is eternal separation from God. And so God says, well... Because you've rebelled, because you've said, I don't want you around, you get to spend the rest of eternity separated from me. You can have exactly what you wanted. That's God's just punishment. But we, we need to take refuge from that. And we were saying two weeks ago that there's somewhere that we need to go to take refuge. And the writer to Hebrews says, put your trust in Jesus as your high priest. Put your hope in Jesus. He will take you right through into the Holy of Holies and into a place of refuge. And yes, you know, when we swear allegiance to Jesus, this does mean that life is going to be more difficult for us. We're going to be placed in the firing line, as it were. But that's okay because Jesus provides an anchor for our souls. It's grounded right there in God himself. And so this is how it was put. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And if you need a refresher on that, just go back to that preach from two weeks ago. But when we see that we need to put our hope in Jesus, just as I had to put my hope in the guy who was lifting me, we ask the question, is Jesus dependable? And we're going to learn that there are different classes of priest. A priest is simply someone who represents us to God, someone who advocates on our behalf to God, who argues our case. And there are lots of different classes or leagues of priest. There were priests in Israel from the tribe of Levi. All of them had descended from Levi. Then there was a priest who were in a completely different league, and his name was Melchizedek. We'll learn today that Melchizedek was a stand-alone priest. He was in a superior category, a unique order. But this order, even though it was a unique one, was simply a prototype or a pattern pointing to the ultimate priest, to the most amazing priest. He was pointing to Jesus, who was after the order of Melchizedek. But whilst Melchizedek was merely a person in the superior order and merely a priest in the superior order, Jesus is the high priest. So what we're going to do is we're going to follow the author as he establishes two different things. First of all, he establishes a connection between Jesus and Melchizedek. And then secondly, he shows the superior of Melchizedek, superiority of Melchizedek's priestly order and shows that it is better than the Levitical priestly order. And so what he's doing is he's saying, if Melchizedek is in a standalone league, superior to every other priest, and he is just merely a pattern of Jesus as our high priest, then Jesus as our high priest is someone that we can truly depend on. So let's read together uh, Hebrews 7 verses 1 to 10. Don't be too intimidated by this because hopefully we'll be able to make sense of it. Um, that's my job today. <laughs> For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace, referring to Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling, important to see that, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He is a, a resemblance, a pattern, a foreshadowing of the Son of God. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. 
In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Seems like double Dutch, doesn't it? You just read that and you think, oh my word, what on earth is that all about? So let's start off 4,000 years ago. That's 2,000 years before the birth of Jesus. God chose Abraham to be Jesus' forefather. He was going to be the progenitor of an entire nation, and Jesus was going to be one of his descendants. And he asked Abraham to leave his country, to leave his people, and to go to a special land that God had chosen for him. And then he made promises to Abraham. Let's read the promises. They'll be up. I will make of you a great nation. There's the first one. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Isn't that interesting? God blesses people so that they can be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now we enter into a very interesting part of the story. Abraham headed out with his wife and his household and his nephew Lot, and after arriving in the promised land, there was a famine. So his way of dealing with this famine was he went down to Egypt, because remember Egypt had the Nile River, so they had reliable water supply and food. But he was afraid that when he arrived there, Pharaoh would see how beautiful Sarah was and how many possessions Abraham himself had and that he would murder Abraham. So Abraham said to Sarah, I want you to say, or I'm going to say that you're my sister. And so that's what he said, and sure enough, Pharaoh looked at Sarah, thought, wow, what an amazing woman, got her into his harem, and uh, started to bless Abraham. But this was not the way in which God wanted to bless Abraham, because this was actually jeopardizing the plans that God had for Abraham and Sarah. I mean, there she was, now on track to becoming a wife of Pharaoh. How was that going to work out? for God's plans. It wasn't. And so God intervened and he made it clear to Pharaoh through disease that happened in Pharaoh's family and household and in the nation that he'd done something wrong, told him what it was. He went back to Abraham and said, how on earth could you have done this to me? Please take your wife and go on your way. And so it doesn't seem like the story of blessing. Um, these promises of God to Abraham are working out too well because Abraham is just frail. He's just an ordinary human being like us. Isn't it good to know, folks, that even though we might be frail, even though we might not be obedient all the time, that God's blessings are still going to prevail in our lives. He still has us on track for eternity. So Let's move on to the next episode, which begins to show how God is starting to bless everybody through Abraham. As time went on, Abraham and Lot, their households grew far too big and their flocks and their possessions to be in the same place. So Abraham said to Lot, we're going to have to divide up. You get the first choice of where to go. 
And Lot looked around and he looked for the most fertile area and that's where he headed off. And he left the, the, the far tougher land to Abraham. The problem was that Lot ended up in a place called Sodom. Now, the, the Sodomites, the people in Sodom, didn't honor and respect God. And the area that they, they settled in, that Lot settled in, was of great strategic importance at the times because it was on the trade route from Africa, Egypt, up into Asia. And so there was a whole lot of settlements that God established along that trade route that became incredibly rich because they were benefiting from the trade and they established city-states with their own kings. And Sodom was one of those city-states. Enter this man, Kedorlaomer. It's a bit of a mouthful, so I'm going to call him King K from now onwards. King K was a powerful king in the area, and he decided that he wanted to control all of those city-states and other kingdoms so that he could benefit from them financially. They started to pay taxes to him. And that state of affairs persisted for 14 years. And then eventually, the king of Sodom got together with the other kings and said, Guys, we've had enough of this. Let's stop sending the taxes. We'll form an alliance, and then when King K comes, we'll see if we can defeat him. And so that's exactly what happened. But King K managed to, to muster such a big army that he was able to subdue a whole lot of other kingdoms on his way coming down to, to Sodom and Gomorrah. So he had this massive, powerful army, and of course he crushed the king of Sodom, and he took Lot and all his family and all the subjects of the king of Sodom and all their possessions, took the whole lot and headed up north. Now there was a servant of Lot's who escaped, went up to Abraham and told him what had happened. What's Abraham going to do? I mean, Lot hadn't exactly treated him very well, had he? Was he going to honor God and try and make a plan for Lot? Remember that Abraham was just a household. You know, he wasn't a king with a kingdom. He was a man with a household. And so he got together 318 of his fighting men. And then he managed to persuade some of his neighbors, who also weren't really kings, to get their fighting men together. A very small inferior army. And he headed up north. And until he, he got up to Gad, I think it was up at the top there, and he ambushed King K during the night and put the entire army to rout, and he came back with everybody and all the possessions. Now, we ask ourselves, how is Abraham going to handle this blessing? Is he going to acknowledge that it's God who's blessed him? that this, in fact, is part of the blessing that God had promised him? Or is he going to say that it was all due to himself? And after all, it must have taken incredible courage to, to get up there with his 318 men and the other men that he, he'd been able to gather. I mean, he must, have, he must have been a very influential person to manage to persuade some of those households around him to come and join him, Mamre and his, and his brothers, he must have been a great strategist to try and figure out how he was going to put this big army to rout. 
I wonder how it's going to turn out. Enter Melchizedek. He goes out to meet Abraham. Because when Abraham was coming back, he would have been coming down south, down the Jordan Valley. And he came adjacent to Jerusalem, which is where Melchizedek lived, before he traveled further down to get back to Sodom, where the king of Sodom would have been. Melchizedek, king of Salem. That's a shortened form of Jerusalem, and it's related to the Hebrew word for peace. The king of Salem brought out bread and wine, not related to the Lord's Supper. He was simply bringing out a meal for these soldiers who had just fought a big battle. He was the priest of, most, of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Notice a few things there. First of all, Melchizedek was a priest and a king. Now in the, is the setup of Israel, priests and kings held different offices. And kings were not allowed to carry out the office of a priest. In fact, King Saul got into tremendous trouble for doing exactly that. He was God's first king in Israel, and God rejected him because he offered sacrifices that should only have been offered by a priest. Melchizedek was a priest and a king. He, was, he blessed Abraham, and we're going to come back to this. And then Abraham gave him a tenth of everything because a tenth was a way of showing honor and respect. It was a king's share. So let's just consider this blessing in a little bit more detail. The blessing that Melchizedek gave Abraham reminded Abraham that the victory was God's doing. And this reminds us of God's promise to Abraham that he's going to be a blessing to others. God was true to his promise since he managed to rescue Lot. He was a blessing to Lot. And he was also a blessing even to the kingdom of Sodom and the other kings that were in alliance with him. Now, Melchizedek's main purpose in blessing Abraham was to prepare him for his interaction with the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom was looking for a way to control Abraham. He would have seen that Abraham was a man of great military might and ability and also of influence. And he wanted to make sure that he had leverage over Abraham in the affairs of what was going on on the trade route. So read in verse 21. It says, And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. What he's doing there, he is just such a sneaky character. He's trying to create the impression that those people that Abraham had rescued and all of the possessions that he got actually still belonged to the king of Sodom. But they didn't. Because in terms of, what it, of the, the rules and the laws that applied at the time, because Abraham had won a battle to get them, they belonged to Abraham. But the king of Sodom is saying, you know, oh, you, know you, you, you can uh, just give me the people and you can keep, keep the goods. And the reason why he wanted to do that is he wanted Abraham always to feel slightly beholden to him. And he wanted other people to think, oh, well, Abraham received God's blessing from the king of Sodom. But Abraham didn't want that to happen. 
This is what Abraham said, verse 22. He said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. Notice that Abraham said, I have lifted my hand. So when he swore that vow, it had happened earlier on. And most of the commentators believe that as he came down and spent time with Melchizedek, that was the time because of Melchizedek's encouragement and reminder that he swore that oath. Didn't Melchizedek serve such an important role in Abraham's life? Wasn't God good to provide Melchizedek in that way? It's a fascinating story, folks, but we're going to go on now to see its full significance. Sometimes when something happens, we don't actually realize how significant it is. Fast forward a thousand years later. God's writing another section of the Bible by inspiring a man called King David. King David wrote Psalm 110. And he would have known, he would have had Genesis, that record that was written by Moses. And he would have been reflecting on it. And the Holy Spirit would have been leading him and guiding him in his reflections. And he writes Psalm 110. And he anticipates the coming of the Messiah. This special king that is going to come and deliver God's people. He's going to be enthroned at God's right hand. And he's going to be established as a priest. So Psalm 110 verse 1, David writes, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. We know from earlier on in Hebrews that this is a reference to the Messiah. And then he wrote in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 verse 4. You know what we talked about just now? That's all we ever heard about Melchizedek. But David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, started to realize that Melchizedek was a pattern of the coming Messiah. He was a foreshadowing of the Messiah. So let's have a look now at the connections that Melchizedek and Christ um, are taught by the writer to the Hebrews. So verses 1 to 2a, this is where we get to today's passage. The writer summarizes the facts that he wants to use from the story that we've just had a look at. And there it is up on the overhead. And then he goes on to point some things out from what he's just written. He says, he is first, Melchizedek is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So, the king of righteousness is actually a direct translation of the Hebrew word Melchizedek. So, he was a king of righteousness. And that word Salem comes from the Hebrew that means peace. So, the king of Salem can be translated as the king of peace. So, Melchizedek was a prototype of the Messiah for these following reasons. 
He was a, both a priest and a king because Jesus was both a priest and a king. Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as the king of righteousness. He's also referred to as the prince of peace. Do you remember that from Isaiah chapter 9? And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So he's both a priest and a king. And these are the titles that were given to the Messiah. But there's one more correlation. There's one more connection between Melchizedek and Jesus. Melchizedek appears to have been eternal. Look at verse 3. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. You kind of wonder how that could be. Some people have proposed that maybe Melchizedek was actually Jesus himself in some sort of early manifestation. But my main problem with that is that the writer says that Melchizedek resembled the Son of God. It doesn't say that he was the Son of God. And so there's another explanation that many um, commentators hold to, and it's the one that I hold to myself. When Moses wrote Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he described Melchizedek without including any details about his lineage, about his birth or his death. And it's significant, folks, that when the Bible was being written, exactly what needed to go in was put in, and exactly what was needed to be left out was left out. The Holy Spirit led Moses to omit those details. And then when Hebrews was written, also under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer took that omission to mean that God wanted to portray Melchizedek's priestly order as an eternal one. And so the author of Hebrews wrote, he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. I ask myself the question, is Melchizedek still alive? I believe, according to this, that we will meet him in heaven. He is, is he still a priest in a unique category? I believe that he is. But I'd also speculate that his role has been superseded by the high priest of his order. He's never referred to as a high priest. He's always referred to as a priest. Jesus is the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So there's these incredible connections between Melchizedek and Jesus. And it leads us to believe that Melchizedek was a pattern or a prototype, a blueprint, if you like, pointing to Jesus. They were both in the same order. But was Melchizedek's order a superior order? Because we need to know, in a sense, that this person who is supporting us is in a different league. Was Melchizedek superior to all the other priests in the Old Testament? Um, the one that even that held the office when Hebrews was written. And this is important because if Melchizedek was a superior priest and he was a prototype of Jesus, this proves that Jesus is the ultimate priest. So let's have a look at the superiority of Melchizedek. We'll come to application of this in due course, folks. There's a lot of 
technical stuff to get through, but uh, it, it's really inspiring. Verse 4 says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. The superior, superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham is proven by the fact that Abraham, even though he was the patriarch, the progenitor of the entire Jewish nation, um, even though he was the most important person in the Jewish nation, was less important than Melchizedek. And it's proven by the fact that he gave a tithe to Melchizedek. The collector of the tithe is always greater than the giver. That's why the collector has a right to the tithe. So paying a tithe is a way of showing honor to someone who is more important than ourselves. And the literal translation of the Hebrew word uh, for tithe is actually 10%, literally 10%. It was a king's share. You can see that in 1 Samuel 8, 15 and 17. You gave 10% to the king. So Abraham was acknowledging that Melchizedek had a king's authority over him. But now he goes on to show, the writer to the Hebrews, that Melchizedek is superior to all the Levitical priests, even the high priests who had to be able to trace their ancestry back to Levi. In verses 5 and 6, the writer does things here where he contrasts the regular Jewish priests with Melchizedek. Let me tell you a little bit about Levitical priests. They had, as I said, an ancestry that could be traced back to Levi. Remember, Levi was one of the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. So you had Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Levi was one of those sons. And each of the 12 fathers was a great-grandson of Abraham. So the first ancestor of Levi who was appointed as a priest was Aaron. And Aaron was the brother of Moses, and every high priest had to show his lineage not only to Levi, but also to um, Aaron as well. So, the 11 tribes of Israel all got land as an inheritance. So they used that land as a means of support. It was their livelihood. But the Levites weren't given any land. The way their source of livelihood came from the tithes of the people. Everybody else gave tithes to them. Now, how do verses 5 and 6, which still remains there on the board, how does that show that Melchizedek was a greater priest than any of the Aaronic priests? Think of this, and this is what this passage is telling us. When a Jew paid his tithe, he paid it first of all to a mere mortal. When Abraham paid Melchizedek, he was paying someone who was going to live forever. So Melchizedek is greater than any Aaronic priest because Melchizedek's order still stands. And some of the Aaronic priests, I'm sure, probably didn't make it to heaven. So, when a Jew paid his tithe, he was paying it to a mere mortal. Melchizedek was way superior to that because he was already set on the path to eternity. Also, when Jews paid a tithe, they paid it to their fellow Israelites. 
Now, if you're paying something to a member of the family, in a sense, you feel obliged to pay something to the member of the family, don't you? You don't feel obliged to pay or to bless somebody or to honor somebody who's outside of your family necessarily, unless they're more important than the members of your family. And so that's what he's arguing for there. He's saying that Melchizedek was more important than the ordinary priests that collected tithes. And then thirdly, he paid his tithe according to the law. Now, you show greater honor when you pay a tithe that is not required by the law. If I'm not required by the law to pay a tithe to this person, and I go ahead and pay a tithe to them, it means that I view them as being incredibly important, in a sense, above the law. And so for these reasons, guys, Melchizedek was a priest in a different league. And of course, the Jews at the time that Hebrews was writing to, they revered Melchizedek. They revered the priests and the high priest who was in office. And it was tempting for them to go back to those priests as a mediator to God and to forsake Jesus because it would have meant that they didn't experience persecution. And that's why the writer to the Hebrews is saying, for heaven's sake, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. He is the high priest. Melchizedek was a priest in a different league. And then the writer tops it off in this way. He says, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes to Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. The idea being that the genetic DNA makeup of every other Jew that descended from Abraham was already in Abraham as the father of the nation. So in a sense, everybody else through Abraham was paying a tithe to Melchizedek, showing him to be of great importance. So we've seen, and this is where we come to our conclusion, the connections between Jesus and Melchizedek. We've seen those connections. This leads us to believe that Melchizedek was a pattern or a type of Jesus, pointing to him. They were both in the same order. We've also seen that Melchizedek's order was a superior order. And if his order was superior to every other priestly order, and it was merely a shadow or a prototype of Jesus's, then Jesus is the ultimate high priest. He is our ultimate representative to God. And we need someone to represent us to God. Folks, we can put our hope in Jesus as an anchor for our souls. As a person who is in a different league to everybody else, in a sense, the lifter who is going to be able to bring us down safely and support us. I'd just like you to think of a few things from that story about Abraham and Melchizedek. Folks, please remember that success can go to our heads, especially financial success. And we need to dedicate our successes to God because that then brings the right perspective. And a tithe and offering to God on a monthly basis is a particularly good way of doing this. It just reminds us who's in charge of our lives. It reminds us who is the source of our blessing. It's not necessarily the channel of support that comes from our salary. It comes from God. He may be choosing to do it through there, but let's not worship 
that source, let's worship the ultimate source. Another thing we need to understand is that a priest helps us not to fall away from God because of the deceitfulness of sin. There was a lot of deceitfulness going on at that time of Abraham's success. And it was Melchizedek who helped him to keep on track. That's exactly what Jesus does for us. In spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our frailty, he will make sure that we keep pressing in back to God and remain on that path which will lead to that ultimate blessing of an eternity with God. We need, folks, we need a high priest in our lives. We need Jesus to be helping us. He is the one who helps us. And then the last thing that I'd like to say is that we are described as, in the Bible, as a royal priesthood. Isn't that interesting? You and I, Grant is a royal priest, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. Isn't that beautiful? Folks, we're in the same order, same priestly order as Jesus Christ. We are a royal priesthood. But the reason why we've been conferred this amazing blessing is so that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is a wonderful thing, folks. We're to be like Melchizedek who helped Abraham by pointing him back to God to proclaim the greatness of God, to proclaim the excellencies of him. And that's what we're to do in our daily lives, in the way that we live, in the way that we relate to people, and also in the way that we encourage one another. Every person in this congregation, you can be sure, will go through times of trial and will need to rely on the rest of us to proclaim the excellencies of God during the time of their trial so that they keep going, so that they continue to honor God and ultimately become the recipients of His eternal blessings. Shall we pray? Father, we're so humbled to think that we have been called into this priesthood, that we get to proclaim your excellencies on a daily basis. And Father, we ask that you would help us to do that. We thank you that we have the Lord Jesus as our high priest We thank you that he is advocating for us and representing us um, before your throne. We thank you that he is the anchor in which we can put our hope in a turbulent life. And Father, we just want to commit ourselves to you. Every day we just want to come to you and say, Father God, have your way in our lives. We know that we make mistakes just as Abraham did with Sarah and Pharaoh, but that your promises will still prevail in our lives. Please just work work with us. Please perfect your strength and our weakness. And we commit ourselves to you today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.